0: file is part of the Swiss Library Lecture Podcast Series. Feel free to share it with friends, family, and colleagues, but we ask you to respect our copyright. So feel free to share it online, but preserve this message and don't modify the file in any way. Also, the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time are not necessarily representative of the views of Library Fellowship. Well, hello everyone. Um, so it looks like it's my turn to do one of these. And uh, you may have heard me earlier with Katrina uh, give one of these podcasts, but this is this is just solo, so uh, we'll see how it goes. This is definitely weird to me to be just talking into a recorder right now. Um, I do not have a physical audience, or at least a not uh, <laughs> visibly present one. Um, so what I'd like to talk to uh, everyone about today is this idea. Um, idea of something that we hear talked about a lot, um, but is kind of vague or, uh, kind of a floaty topic. I'm going to do my best to kind of sketch out what I think are some useful, um, definitions. Uh, but I'm not going to totally exhaust it. But anyway, so we're talking about the imagination today. What is the imagination? Why does it matter? Um... I guess I'll start by saying why I find this interesting. Um, Well, firsthand, I really like stories. Uh, I I studied literature in college. Um, It was a big deal to me. Um, And through my appreciation of literature and trying to figure out sometimes what's the significance of a story, particularly things that are really perplexing, like Anton Chekhov's stories or Flannery O'Connor's or things like that, um, I realized that it There was something similar going on in Scripture. Scripture's full of stories. It's not all just Paul's letters, um, as nice as those are. So then what do we do with those? It's kind of a nagging question in the back of my mind. is Why did God bother telling stories this way? Um, I I don't think it's just because we're kind of stupid and we wouldn't be able to handle an essay that long. Uh, I think there's probably something to it being in story that's important. And um, the other, and imagination is a big part of how we engage with that. But another reason why I find it interesting is um, I kind of have these questions of what does it mean to be a person? These kind of humanity, know thyself kind of questions that are important to me. Um, What does it mean that I have an imagination? What are these different parts of my mind or is it all meaningful to talk about that? You know, like I have reason, emotion, imagination. Sometimes I think this is all, um, I don't know, maybe these categories break down a little bit, but it's interesting to think about, okay, what is this part of myself? What is this part of humanity that is, uh, an imagination? And maybe how can that be used to change, um, my behavior or encourage others? Um, and, uh, some of this might sound a little familiar because, um, some of what I will say about imagination, uh will overlap a little bit with how people talk about worldview. Um, potentially, you might hear some resonances there. Uh, but don't worry about that. I think, um, that's not necessarily to say that there's nothing new here, uh, or at least it's, it might be helpful to see similar things said from a different angle. Anyway, so the way we're going to explore this today is, um, I'll kind of talk, We'll kind of work up a definition of imagination, um, and I'm going to try to unite two streams um, of how it's talked about. There's the our daily life common sense stream, and then there's a more academic discussion. Uh, which, if I were to just drop that on you right now, at least I know it would be for me um, pretty confusing uh, because it doesn't sound it doesn't sound at first like how we usually think of imagination. Um, But I I think they are unified, and um, in particular I'll be dialoguing with this excellent book um, by Mary Warnock um, called Imagination. (laughs) It's a fairly old book, but it's um, a pretty important survey of the history, of the concept of the imagination, where it comes from, and I'll kind of dive into a little bit of a um, philosophical conversation, but it'll be relatively short. So if that's not your thing, don't worry about it. And um, we'll see in her work uh, three kinds of imagination that she kind of identifies. Um, and then I'll focus on the third of those because I think it's potentially the most interesting. Um, but let's start. Let's just start with uh, trying to work out what we think imagination is. So, what I usually think about imagination, like when someone hits me with that word, um, probably one of the first things that comes to mind is, uh, okay, just fantastic stuff. Like, uh, things that you can create in your mind that couldn't exist otherwise. Like, imagine a tree, you know, with blue apples on it. Something that doesn't exist, but only exists in the mind. I don't know, I could probably have come up with something more fantastic sounding than just blue apples, but you know whatever. blue apples. Um, but I think there's another way that we kind of commonly use uh, the words and the word imagination as well um, or we kind of think about it. And I think this comes to uh, this appears in um, just ideas of mental images. So if you're a super mathy person, you might imagine a triangle or something you you know like you hold these mental images in your head to better understand them um or for more of the rest of us if you're giving directions somewhere you might imagine the road that you're giving directions on or the different turns um and then use that to describe things we could kind of think of the imagination a little bit as the mind's eye you know um so okay that that's I kind of think of those as a little bit common sense ways that we talk about it, common language. Um but the more academic discussion uh links imagination first off with perception. So there's something about the imagination that is involved like when I look at a book and think, "Ooh, that's a book." Um So that sounds a little weird, but let's see if I can explain it. So when you look at, um, well, let's have a little history lesson, actually. So, um, the person that I think typifies this way of looking at things is David Hume, and um, I'm following Warnock's uh, line of reason here. Uh, David Hume, he was an empiricist from way long ago, um... And what that means is that he wanted to find a foundation for all truth and sense experience. You see, the um, the Reformation happened, and it kind of left uh, everyone in um, a bit of a crisis, wondering, okay, well, we don't have you know, just one church telling us what's more or less the authoritative version of things. Um, we've got all these dissenting opinions and religious wars and everything like that, so a bunch of people uh, during the Enlightenment wanted to find some kind of ground or foundation for truth that we could all agree on. Uh, you can think of Descartes as kind of one of the most uh, significant people in this attempt. And um, he wanted to reduce everything to what could be proved in the mind kind of mathematically. But there are other people that wanted to start instead of with the mind, with the senses themselves. And I think um, one of the most paradigmatic of these guys was David Hume. And so what he thought is, okay, I'm looking at this book on my table, um, and I say it's a book, but really, if I'm really paying attention to all of my senses, I see actually kind of a rectangular shape, and then another rectangular shape, and they kind of fit together. Um, And then he says, well... All of this is just chaotic, um, sense experience. So there must be something that groups it together into some sort of object. And that was what he said was the imagination. Um, which I, I, I can follow in there. You know, I think, okay, there's probably something that groups all of my sense experiences together, but why call it the imagination? And, um, the best idea I've had to come up with this, um, well, I'll come up with how to explain this, is that if we think of um, all of these separate little bits of information coming together to create a whole, uh, we can actually see that that is the heart of what the imagination is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll get clearer in a little bit. Um, so, for example, You know, we look at the book, but let's think about how we relate to other people. Um, Say you engage with someone you know in a conversation, and you're picking together all of these little subtle cues and subtle ways that they sit or hold um, their posture or inflections or things like that. And you kind of construct from all of this data a mental image of what this person is like on the inside. Okay, see, that is actually the imagination working to help you understand what's behind all of these things. So similarly, when it comes to the book, I see all of the different, you know, like, bits of perception, but my imagination is what constructs all of that into kind of an entity in my mind. Okay. Um we'll move on. Maybe if that wasn't clear for you, it'll become a little bit more clearer as I talk more. So Warnock presents, she kind of systematizes um, all these different aspects of the imagination uh, into three categories. There's perception, like I talked about before. Uh, there's creative imagination, and then there's the perception of significance, and I think this is the one that's most interesting. But what she sees as in common between all of these is you're taking um, parts and assembling a whole. Um, I'm not sure if she puts it exactly in that language, but you can see this idea a little bit in her book. Um, so in the case of perception, I'm receiving all of this sense experience, and then I'm realizing I'm using my imagination to get a sense of what this thing is I'm looking at um, so you know you see you see a ball bouncing along the ground, maybe downhill um, and you know from your previous experiences of things that bounce and also from um just kind of how you've observed this particular bouncing movement, you can have an idea of where it's going to go, and that's your imagination working to sort that out because it helps you perceive the nature of the object. But a similar thing happens when we're creative. Only in that case, the object is not there. Like when I talked about my blue apple tree, um... I'm taking all my previous experiences of apples and blueness, I guess, if that's a thing, um, and then I'm mixing and matching those things together into a new whole. But in this case, the whole is not present before me as it is with the bouncing ball or the book on my desk. It's um, it's something that exists only in my mind. Uh, but in both cases, we see this common root of assembling of mixing and matching uh, external things, impressions, experiences. But now, what about this third thing, the perception of significance? Like, what does that even mean? Um, And I find this to be the most surprising thing in her treatment of it. Um, It's this idea that the imagination allows us to have these moments. I'm not sure how common these are, but, um, you see something happening and you see, uh, and you immediately have this insight that life is like this. Um, some people, you know, following Camus might assume that you take the story of Sisyphus, um, who's a character from Greek mythology, rolling his boulder up the top to the top of a mountain and then watching it sit there only to roll down the other side. And then he has to go and do it again. Uh, some people in a particularly despairing mood might say, yes, this story is essentially capturing the heart of life. Um, Or you might kind of go the other way. And, uh, you know, you watch you might, um, say you garden or something and you, you plant all of these things in your garden and you watch them slowly growing and improving over time and turning into something beautiful. Uh, you might see some sort of parallel with life there. Um, and then maybe potentially if you're on the despairing side, again, you'll notice that those things fade and wither and that life is ultimately fleeting. Um, but it's this idea of, oh, I see this thing in the world, but it tells me something about the true nature of life. Um, I find this very interesting. And some of where this discussion comes from in Warnock's uh, book, it comes from the romantics, the English romantics in particular. And if you're not familiar with them, uh, they're kind of a... You know, they they have some good points and some bad points. Um, they uh, were very interested in how the emotions, or particularly this kind of experience of significance, gives us a window into life. It gives us a window into understanding the true nature of it. So um, Coleridge and Wordsworth, the two uh, foremost English romantics, they would sit and they'd write these poems, Wordsworth in particular. He would sit and he would say, okay, I was walking the other day and I saw this beautiful thing. Now I'm going to go back home and think about it and see like, okay, what actually, what does this inspire in me? And does this kind of give me any particular access to the true nature of things? And the reason they thought they could find the true nature of things there uh, was in part due to... Um, this trajectory of thought that kind of ended up in them during the time um, that they they were kicking around. Um, there was uh, a group known as, um, okay, quick philosophical history lesson. So there was a guy named Kant, Immanuel Kant, or Kant, if that's your uh, pronunciation. And um, he divided all, reality itself into two categories there were the things that we experience you know like sense experience like we were talking about again and then the things that produce those experiences and this was um created two categories one that he called the noumena and one that he called the phenomena the noumena is the thing in itself and we can't really get there um but the phenomena is kind of what that shines at us so like a crude analogy. The noumena is the light bulb, and the phenomena is the light that we see. Uh, can you see the light bulb without the light? Uh, well, not really, because it has to be light bouncing off of it for you to see it. But there's something there producing it, and that was kind of Kant's idea. But it's it's slippery. It's hard to think that most of the world is something we're not actually perceiving. Um, and some of his followers took the noumena and kind of put them inside the mind itself it's like okay if all of my world is just what i perceive maybe that's all the world is is just my perceptions um and one of the ways that this wound up is there was an idea that okay we have these perceptions but we can get to the things in themselves. Kind of that are buried in our subconscious, or kind of this uh, deeper substrata of who we are, and that was what the Romantics were interested in teasing out. And um, all of this, uh, much of what I've said, is deeply indebted to Warnock. I never realized the connection between these two groups before, um, but through interaction with some of these philosophers, actually, that came after Kant, uh, the English Romantics um, built some of their ideas. And they were thinking that, okay, if we can get to these powerful feelings uh, through poetry or looking at nature, that's how we can get more to the true nature of things, this kind of subconscious world of ideas. Um, and, you know, you might find this idea interesting. I, I'm not that convinced by the romantics. Um, but I do think their idea that there is something perceived in these moments of significance has some has some meat on its bones. Um, I don't think it's a bad idea. But where I would want to qualify it, maybe, is not trusting it completely. Uh, realizing um, that just because you have a powerful feeling about something doesn't necessarily mean that's the true story. Um, it tells you something, but it's not the whole story. Uh, which, they would probably be a little bit more nuanced, but if we were to... Boil them down to their strongest essence. Uh, That seems to be some of what they're saying. So I would want to tweak it, this view, a little bit, um, and say that perhaps some of um, what we engage with in those moments of finding significance, uh, when our imagination reaches out and finds a concrete experience and sees in it something universal, um, that's some of Warnock's language, I believe, or maybe she's quoting uh, Kant, is that the imagination is what sees the universal and the particular. You know, so going back to our book, it's what sees the book, you know, in all of my sense experiences, or particularly in this idea of significance, it's what sees life, you know, life and all of its richness inside the growing flower or inside um the story of Sisyphus pushing his rock up the hill. Um, And I think maybe some of what we bring to the table in terms of our ideas and our pre-existing beliefs are actually, will predict some of what we find here. Um, So I would want to say maybe we should give this all a little bit of a perspectival tweak to um, say it in a complicated way realize that maybe this sense of significance that we find in the world is sometimes um, something we're anticipating. Maybe not always, but something, sometimes. Um, for example, if you come with a presupposition of life is hopeful, um, then you might take more significance out of the growing flower uh, and less out of the story of Sisyphus. And if you were um, to come at life from the other angle, you would discount the experiences um, of good things, of hopeful things, and say those are more illusions and the deep story is, you know, this, this futility. Um, But I think maybe we shouldn't just have, um, we shouldn't just assume this is easy. And for this reason, I'd like to bring in um, one other person that I find just really interesting, um, is named John Donne. Uh, he was a English poet before the Romantics. Um, I think in some ways, uh, the metaphysical poets, which is his school of poetry and, uh, English, uh, literature, uh, are a very interesting group of people. Um, but I'll just focus on John Donne uh, for the moment. He wrote this really interesting book called... um, Well, he wrote a lot of poetry, (laughs) of course. But he wrote this book that's not exactly poetry, and it's not exactly how you would write prose either. And it was called Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. And this book was interesting uh, because if you read it, it doesn't... I mean, it sounds like a devotion book, and I believe he was a pastor for a period of time. um, But it is... It's a weird devotion book. It's all about him lying in his bed sick, thinking about what does it mean, um, which makes for pretty bizarre devotional reading. He'll compare his, like, fits of bleeding to, um, the red waters rushing down rivers, and it's really, it's a strange book, but I'd recommend it. It's on Project Gutenberg. It's free. Go for it. Um... But he divides each of these little devotions into three stages, and the first is uh, meditation. the second is um i think exposition or expostulation we'll say exposition because I think that's a prettier word uh and then the third is a prayer and what's interesting is um if you just take the first one in the book uh in case you want to follow along um He's looking at the fact that, because he starts out with the first one being he got sick, basically. It kind of follows a chronological movement in the book. And um, in the first one, he's realizing, like, wow, I've gotten sick. Everything I've done, I've done to stay healthy. And then here, sickness sneaks up on me and gets me. And then, oh, yeah, isn't it terrible That even before I was sick, I was afraid of getting sick. So sickness kind of haunts me, even when I'm well. And it's all over my mind. Um, So he had this concrete experience in his life. This, um, particular. And then in the second section of the book, well, of the meditation, uh, devotion, that's it, um, he tries to find some more universal significance. And I think this is particularly interesting. Um, He begins to think about his sickness, and then he compares it to uh, what he saw as the state of his own soul, as um, sick and needing God, um, and needing God's healing. And he thought about, okay, well, what do I learn about my sickness um, my physical sickness, and what does that have to tell me about my relationship to God? And um, part of what he finds in this section is he realizes that he's far more concerned about his bodily health than he is about his interactions with God. And um, he realizes that there's some sort of disconnect with what he believes and how he lives in this way. And um, so if we were to model this on the uh, imagination of significance idea he sees this particular experience and then he generalizes it from it um, or he something about life itself, so he's seeing the universal in the particular of his sickness. but what I find really interesting is where you might in um you might argue that kind of a romantic notion, and this is super simplistic, if you're a a student of romantic literature, I'm sure you can come up with a counteract example, but conceptually, we can organize it this way, um, as with the romantic, you would have this experience of the universal and the particular, and it's kind of like a light shining into your soul from the true nature of things, um, and then great, you know, um, but in Dunn's work, we have this third step, and it's the step of prayer, uh, which I find really interesting because he realizes that there's some truth in what he's um, perceived in this universal in the particular, this bit of life contained within an aspect of his day or his experience, and he doesn't feel up to living in light of it. He doesn't feel up to what it has to say to him, so he turns to God Um, and asks for help um and i think you can find a similar movement actually in the psalms when you see um the psalmist talking about all these experiences and these concrete things like enemies and um his own depression or sickness or all of that and there's a spiritualization of it as well and a crying out to god um that you can that you can find sometimes in reading the Psalms. and I think it's this crying out, this prayer, this third step of interacting with uh, the universal and the particular, that I find um, worth considering. Because um, if we, I've talked a little bit about this, and this is this is where we'll kind of uh, end up today, is this tension between hope and despair? What does it mean to have a hopeful imagination versus a despairing imagination? And I think it's hard because I think actually we should have a little bit of both um, in our experience a little bit of the idea, kind of the theological idea of the already and the not yet, the hopeful and also the um the sorrowfulness of life um, and it's interesting that at the very end of uh Mary Warnock's book, when she talks about this like kind of a paradigmatic breaking in of uh, the universal into the particular. She talks about C.S. Lewis, actually, uh, and his experience of joy that you may have heard about in Amelia's podcast episode. And what's interesting is that joy is this experience of both extreme sorrow and extreme happiness kind of tied together. So maybe there's room for both of these sorts of things. Um... If I have to think about some experiences I've had in this regard, um, and it's kind of funny to put this in a podcast, but um, I think about two things that sometimes um, affect me strongly. Uh, one is um, if there's a character in a book or a person in my life that I see that has something they really love and it seems dear to them, I start to feel kind of sad sometimes because I see this as, um, you know, there's the potential for loss there. There's this fragility to life, potential of disappointment and sadness and grief. Um, and that's true. That's, that's a real thing, but it affects me strongly and kind of speaks to me as if this is, this is the true aspect of life. Um, but other times, um, I've had a similarly strong feeling about um, God being in control and uh, the significance of being loved by God and just how overwhelming that is um, when you really think about the magnitude of who God is and um, how weird it is that he would be concerned with, um, you know, not being super self-deprecating but just, you know, I'm not that interested about an ant. You know, so it's pretty cool that, you know, God is that invested in who I am, given how little he needs me, um, without saying that I'm super horrible, um, I'm not trying to advocate a worm theology, but there's just something, like, kind of staggering about that, and, um, I think maybe there's room for there to be a little bit of a war between these two inside of us, um, that it's not totally clear-cut. Um, and our imagination will kind of see different things as the ultimate reality sometimes. Um, and that maybe that's okay. And that we can follow Dunn's model of um, bringing this before God and um, kind of ending in prayer. Allowing um, our imaginations to be shaped by God's will for us. Uh, and not just our own um, experiences or presuppositions about what life is like um, but that maybe there could be something as um, strange sounding as a training or an education of our imaginations um, and maybe uh, this is something I'd like to explore further is um, how does the how does scripture do that does scripture itself and its stories uh, train up in us this kind of imagination of hope and kind of a, maybe even also an imagination of meaningful lament um, in dealing with the hardness of life. Um, so maybe that will be a topic for later. But uh, that's all I have to talk about today. And um, I hope it's been mostly clear. Um, it's strange doing a recording because uh, I don't have the benefit of seeing people look confused or not in front of me. Um, but I'll imagine... <laughs> oh gosh, that that it was more or less successful, unless someone tells me otherwise. But thanks, thanks for listening all this way. Okay, bye.